Grace, mercy, and peace are yours. From God our Father and from our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, amen. As I mentioned at the start of the service, we have begun, this is week two now, of a sermon series on the prophet Elijah. Let me just catch you up from last week just real briefly. God had told Ahab through the prophet Elijah that there would be no rain on the land until God gave Elijah his word. We got to see God's miracles as he fed Elijah by ravens and then through a widow outside of Israel to preserve his life during the famine. But now as we begin chapter 18 today, three plus years have passed. As a matter of fact, it's Jesus who tells us in Luke chapter 4 that it was three and a half years between the time the rain stopped and the next rain would come. Can you imagine the tension that existed between Ahab and Elijah? Thankfully, Elijah was far away and Ahab didn't know where to find him. But this growing tension was a result of Ahab refusing to see what God was trying to demonstrate to him. That his false gods, Baal and Asherah, they couldn't bring rain. They had no power. And so as we begin chapter 18, what we're going to see is Elijah meeting up with Ahab and it comes down to a, co a contest, a showdown. Which God can prove that he's real? I thought about that today because when we get to the text, you're going to see that Elijah is greatly outnumbered. And I found this little picture this week and thought, yep, that sometimes is how we feel, isn't it? Listen to Jesus' words again from our gospel lesson, right? He reminds us that we're not going to be popular and loved by everybody in this world. But it has nothing to do with you and me. It has to do with Jesus and the fact that we follow him. Isn't it striking that Jesus used these words? Wide is the road and broad the path that leads to destruction and many are on it. But narrow is the gate and small the road that leads to life and only a few find it. It's sad to think about those things. But it's an assurance to you and me today that God knows exactly where we're at. When we feel alone, when we feel outnumbered, when we feel that something isn't right in our lives, maybe God's not paying attention to what's going on. An account like what we're about to read in 1 Kings 18 can bring us immense comfort and immense peace. Because Elijah learned the lesson that he was not outnumbered, he was not alone, and we can take that same truth from our God today. So as we take a look, a deeper look at chapter 18, we're going to look at this showdown on Mount Carmel. And as we see it, we're going to think about it in this way. There's going to be this contest in which there is two gods that are worshipped. And the one god is going to end up as a display of foolishness. And the worship of the other god is going to end up in a display of power. We are going to look at this text on page 557 in your pew Bibles if you'd like to follow along today. We're on page 557. We're going to start in verse 16 today in, on page 557. You can certainly follow along on your phone or just listen as the text is read as well. I'll give you a chance to get there and then we'll look at verses 16 to 24. We'll divide this end of this chapter 18 into three sections. Here's what the author of Kings writes for us. So Obadiah went to meet Ahab and told him, and Ahab went to meet Elijah. 
When he saw Elijah, he said to him, Is that you, you troubler of Israel? I have not made trouble for Israel, Elijah replied, but you and your father's family have. You have abandoned the Lord's command and have followed the Baals. Now summon the people from all over Israel to meet me on Mount Carmel and bring the 450 prophets of Baal and the 400 prophets of Asherah who eat at Jezebel's table. So Ahab sent word throughout all Israel and assembled the prophets on Mount Carmel. Elijah went before the people and said, How long will you waver between two opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal is God, follow him. But the people said nothing. Then Elijah said to them, I am the only one of the Lord's prophets left, but Baal has 450 prophets. Get two bulls for us. Let them choose one for themselves and let them cut it into pieces and put it on the wood but not set fire to it. I will prepare the other bull and put it on the wood but not set fire to it. Then you call on the name of your God and I will call on the name of the Lord. The God who answers by fire, he is God. Then all the people said, what you say is good. So as Elijah has been away from Israel for the better part of three years, you would think that maybe, maybe there would be a little softening of Ahab's heart. As the rain continued to hold off, as things got drier and drier, maybe there would be some admission on Ahab's part that God, the only true God, is the one that is really the God to be worshipped. But, but three and a half years did nothing to change Ahab's heart. As a matter of fact, I think we could make the case that his heart was even harder than it had been before. When he finds out Elijah's back in the land, all he wants to do is have a meeting with him. I have a feeling that he didn't have good intentions for Elijah. When they meet up, he actually calls him an interesting name. Is that you, you troubler of Israel, he says to Elijah. I was thinking a little bit about that this week. And I thought, that's a pretty common reaction, isn't it? When someone doesn't want to hear what you have to say, what God has to say to us in his word, our first reaction when someone calls us out for something that we've done wrong, isn't it also or often to lash out at them? To say, well, what are you talking about? You don't know. You're not, you're not perfect either, right? And I think we see that here in Ahab and Elijah. Ahab knows that Elijah is the one who's honoring the true God. But all he can see is trouble in Elijah because it's, it's Elijah's fault. Elijah needs to take the blame for no rain coming on the land. That's a tough thing, isn't it? That God calls on us to do. If your brother or sister sins against you, go and show him his fault just between the two of you. But there's always a good purpose behind it. If they listen to you, you have won them over, Jesus tells us. And yes, it might not be received very well because that's the way we think by nature. So Elijah sets up what's going to amount to this contest, this showdown on Mount Carmel. And as everybody gathers, including the people of Israel, to witness which one of these two gods, Baal or the true God of Israel, was going to prove themselves, Elijah has a piercing question. How long? He says to them, will you waver between two opinions? That word in the original Hebrew is kind of an interesting word. It has the idea of limping or halting. 
And so by kind of extrapolation, it gets to this idea that you can't make up your mind. You're sitting on the fence. You're wavering between two different thoughts. You see what the trouble was in Israel, don't you? They understood who the true God was. They had heard all about him. But on the other hand, this idea that maybe these false gods could bring some pleasure to our lives too was a tough balance for them to strike. They wanted to fear God, but they wanted to have the things of this world too. Sound familiar? Don't we all deal with that same thing? Yes, we're here this morning. We want to worship God. We love him. We love what he's done for us in his son. But then sometimes when we walk out these doors, life becomes challenging and we focus on what's happening here and now and our lives in this world and we kind of forget about what God really stands for. And we waver between those two opinions as well. Thanks be to God that in this text, he's going to demonstrate to all the people beyond a shadow of a doubt who God is. Did you hear the numbers? 450 prophets of Baal, 400 prophets of Asherah and Elijah. Yes, 850 against one. Sounds a little overwhelming, doesn't it? That here's Elijah going to take on 850 other prophets and see how things turn out in the end. And the contest was pretty simple, as you heard it read, wasn't it? Each group was going to prepare an altar. They were going to get a bull ready for sacrifice, but they were not going to set fire to it. Only their God could set fire to it when they prayed to him, and that would be proof. And the people all agreed. Yeah, that'll be great. Whichever God proves themselves, that's the one that we're going to worship. So they go to Mount Carmel. I thought I would demonstrate with just a little bit of a map. You can probably see it over here on the left-hand side. Right along the sea of Gal or the, the uh, Mediterranean Sea, uh, Mount Carmel has this beautiful view uh, looking out not only on the sea, but then on the Valley of Jezreel as well. Not very far from the summer palace that Ahab and Jezebel had in the city of Jezreel. Not too far away from places that you probably recognize, Nazareth. Then over here, Capernaum, Bethsaida, some of those other ones, a wedding at Cana, all kind of in that same area. 1,700 feet above sea level is, is Mount Carmel, and that's where they were going to go for this showdown. We have a person who recently, who's a member here at chapel, who recently made a journey to the Holy Land, recommends it highly. I don't think Natasha's here today, but she sent me this picture. She said, if you're going to talk about Mount Carmel next week, I have pictures. And so this is a picture that she took from the top of Mount Carmel looking over the valley. And it's a beautiful and stunning sight. I imagine on that day, it didn't look quite so lush and green after three and a half years without rain. So the contest is set. Let's take a look at what happens. Chapter 18, verses 25 to 29. Elijah said to the prophets of Baal, Choose one of the bulls and prepare it first, since there are so many of you. Call on the name of your God, but do not light the fire. So they took the bull given them and prepared it. Then they called on the name of Baal from morning till noon. O Baal, answer us, they shouted. But there was no response. No one answered, and they danced around the altar they had made. At noon, Elijah began to taunt them. Shout louder, he said. Surely he is a god. Perhaps he is deep in thought or busy or traveling. Maybe he is sleeping and must be awakened. 
So they shouted louder and slashed themselves with swords and spears as was their custom until their blood flowed. Midday passed and they continued their frantic prophesying until the time for the evening sacrifice. But there was no response. No one answered. No one paid attention. It's a striking display, isn't it? Starting probably sometime in the morning, maybe around 9 o'clock or so, we're not, we're not exactly told, the prophets of Baal and Asherah started. They got the bowl all prepared. They put it on the altar just like the contest said, but they didn't set fire to it. Instead, they prayed. Not just once. They prayed from morning until noon. And then we're going to be told after Elijah gives them a little bit of ribbing, taunting, mocking, whatever you want to call it. We're told that they prayed all the way up to the time of evening sacrifice, usually around 6 p.m. Twice in those few short verses, the author says so clearly, no, there was no response. No one answered. No one paid any attention. And why would they? They were praying to thin air. They were praying to a non-existent God who had non-existent powers and that explains Elijah's mocking. He's trying to get them to see that what they're praying to is no God at all. What kind of a God is too busy for the people who call on him? What kind of God has to take naps or go to sleep? What kind of God says, sorry, I won't be available for the next two weeks, I have to go on vacation? And then I thought, if we take from this text, thankfully I'm not like the prophets of Baal and Asherah, then we've missed the point. Because we might not bow down to false gods. We might not pray to Baals and, Baals and Asherahs. But think of the things in our lives that become more important to us than God. Think of where we find so often our safety and security in this life. Maybe in the homes in which we live. Maybe the jobs that God has blessed us with. Maybe the money that we're able to make. And then I thought, does this happen to you? It actually comes on Sunday morning. Every Sunday morning I get a report about my screen time. Somebody want to teach me how to turn that off? Because it's amazing, isn't it? And if you don't get that report, maybe you should. Because it's one of those ways that reminds us that little thing, that little computer that we hold in our hands that has so much information and so much capability and so many ways to make our lives easier. Sometimes we hold on to that as if it's our own Baal or Asherah. It's easy, isn't it? It's easy to spend time on things that maybe aren't quite as important because they're enjoyable. They make us forget about the worries and cares of this world. Maybe the question can just be asked this way, what kind of gods do we worship? You see, it's easy, isn't it, to try and remove a speck of sawdust from somebody else's eye when we ignore the plank in our own eyes? And instead, let's be reminded, just as Elijah did, how thankful we can be that we serve the one true God, the one who sacrificed himself for us. You don't need any other gods because no other gods can take the place of the God that we have. One last point before we move on. It's kind of amazing, isn't it, what the prophets of Baal were willing to do? As their, their frustration with not being answered became desperation, and they danced around the altar, they were even willing to cut themselves, to slash themselves so that their blood flowed. 
some way, any way that they could get the attention of their God and that maybe, just maybe, he would have mercy on them. I thought about that this week too. Sometimes we think that way. If, if we just do the right things or say the right words, then, then God will pay attention to us. And, and it took me back to, maybe that's almost like a child, isn't it? I don't know, and I won't make you admit, but maybe you or one of your siblings was the one that always was striving to get the attention of a parent. Maybe you didn't use a bullhorn and shout in your father's ear, but we do different things, right? Thinking that that's going to make people pay attention to us, that, that we can get the answers that we need, that, that we can get what we want from them. And sometimes we treat God that same way. As if there's some magic formula that we can say or do and it'll make God do all the great things that we want him to do. Here's why that's backwards. Because what God does is he's at work getting our attention. He doesn't need us to get his attention because he's already working to get our attention from him. Isn't that what he was doing for Ahab by giving no rain for three and a half years? But even more, isn't that what God is doing every time we hear the good news of salvation in Jesus? Getting our attention to say, look, look how much I love you. Look what I was willing to do for you. And when we reflect on our baptism where, where some drops of water were poured on our head in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and God said, now you're mine. That's God getting our attention. Or today, as we receive a small piece of bread and a sip of wine, and God is saying to us, that's my son's body and blood together with the bread and wine. That's what I was willing to give up for you. Pay attention. Because I have great things in store for you. The forgiveness of your sins and a life forever in heaven. It's amazing, isn't it, that blood was at the, the idea that the prophets of Baal had, that somehow that was going to get God's attention. And instead, instead it's God. It's God who shed the blood of his own son to get our attention, to remind us of his deep love for us and the eternal life that is ours through him. Let's finish the chapter and see the last display. So we saw the foolishness of the prophets of Baal, now the power of our God. Verses 30 to 39, please. Then Elijah said to all the people, come here to me. They came to him and he repaired the altar of the Lord, which was in ruins. Elijah took 12 stones, one for each of the 12 tribes, of the tribes descended from Jacob, to whom the word of the Lord had come, saying, Your name shall be Israel. With the stones he built an altar, and in the name of the Lord he dug a trench around it, large enough to hold two seahs of seed. He arranged the wood, cut the bull into pieces, and laid it on the wood. Then he said to them, Fill four large jars with water, and pour it on the offering and on the wood. Do it again, he said, and they did it again. Do it a third time, he ordered, and they did it the third time. The water ran down around the altar and even filled the trench. At the time of sacrifice, the prophet Elijah stepped forward and prayed, O Lord, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known today that you are God in Israel and that I am your servant and have done all these things at your command. Answer me, O Lord, answer me, so these people will know that you, O Lord, are God and that you are turning their hearts back again. Then the fire of the Lord fell and burned up the sacrifice, the wood, the stones, and the soil, and also licked up the water in the trench. When all the people saw this, they fell prostrate and cried, The Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. 
When it's Elijah's turn, he rebuilds an altar that's in ruins. The altar that represented the 12 tribes of Israel. Maybe a little bit of a commentary on how far things had fallen in Israel. But he rebuilds the altar and then he takes all kinds of extra steps so that there can be no doubt as to God's power. He pours water on the sacrifice three times, including digging a trench around that altar that fills up with water. If you looked at the little footnote in your NIV Bible, it tells us that the amount of water in the trench was the equivalent of 15 liters. I don't know if this has ever happened to you, but if you've ever tipped over a two-liter bottle of soda and watched it spill out onto the ground, that's a lot of liquid. And there were seven and a half of those that were pouring out. Now, keep in mind that it hasn't rained for three and a half years. How long did it take for some of that water to soak in before the trench filled up? We don't know. What Elijah's doing is demonstrating God's power beyond a shadow of a doubt. His prayer is pretty interesting, isn't it? Did you notice that he never asked God to rain fire down from heaven? All he said is this, We know who you are, God. You are the God of heaven and earth. Let your name be praised today. You show people who you are, and God did. Fire from heaven that not burned only the sacrifice, but the wood, the stone, and even all the soil and the water in the trench. God left no doubt, incontrovertible proof that he was the winner of the contest. The only thing the people could do was worship the Lord, he is God. They said, the Lord, he is God. And as we're going to see next week, the change was unfortunately short-lived. And Elijah's going to feel sorry for himself because after the winning contest, he thinks that everything's going to go back to a worship of the true God and it doesn't quite work that way and God has another answer for him then. But we can draw the same conclusion, can't we, as we look Oh, maybe God's not going to rain fire down from heaven. He's not going to do exactly what we need him to do. He's not going to necessarily use the power that we see on display here to change people's hearts. But here's one display of power that you can count on. The same God who sent Jesus to die for you is going to send Jesus again. And when he comes again in glory at the last day, then we will know beyond a shadow of a doubt that God is who he says he is when every Knee will bow in heaven on, on, and on earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. That's the joy that we have. We get to see the power of our God here in this text and know that that's the power that's at work in our lives. Here are some takeaways from our sermon today. Number one, through Elijah, God cautions us against a wavering faith. In Revelation chapter 3, Jesus is writing letters to churches, real churches that lived in and around the area of Asia Minor, and he gets to the Laodiceans, and he calls them lukewarm Christians, neither hot nor cold. And he says this, I'm about to spit you out of, your mouth, out of my mouth. It's Jesus who wants us to see the joy of living for him, the joy for, of the blessings that he has given us so that we do live for him. Number two, God gets our attention by reminding us that we are saved through Jesus. Do you know these words from Isaiah chapter 1? Come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall be like wool. Finally, number three, when we feel alone, we know that God is always with us and he is for us. 
The Lord will never forsake his people, Psalm 47 says. He will never turn his back on his inheritance. So there's Elijah, 850 prophets against one. Did he feel outnumbered or did he understand this truth of Scripture? If God is for us, no one can be against us. Or perhaps this quote that's often attributed to Martin Luther, of whom shall I be afraid? One with God is a majority. Isn't that a great thought to take with us? When you have God, when God who has worked so hard to get your attention by sending his son to die for you and to rise again to guarantee your eternal life with him, when you know that God is for you, then nothing, nothing in this world, no troubles, no pain can be against you. It's the God who showed himself on Mount Carmel. It's the God who raised Jesus from the dead, guaranteeing your forgiveness. And it's the God who promises that he is with us always to the very end of the age, all the way to our eternity with him. Of whom shall I be afraid? Amen. The peace of God which passes all understanding will guard and keep your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Amen.